0: Volume two, chapter nine, of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume two, Chapter 9. LOVE HOW IT Sells Poor Bliss for Proud Despair. Shelley. It was Sunday morning, and it was something more. There was a subtle change in the air, a mystery in the sunshine. Autumn and summer were met in tremulous wedlock, but the hand of the bride trembled in the bridegrooms. In the rapture of bridal there was a prophecy of parting and death. The birds knew it. In the songless silence the robin was practising his autumn reverie. Joy and sadness were blent together in the solemn beauty of transition. The voice of the brook was sunk to a whisper to-day. Through the still air the tangled voices of the church-bells came from the little grey church in the valley. A rival service was going on in the rookery on Moat Hill, in which the congregation joined with hoarse unanimity. Miss Fane did not go to church in the morning, so John and Di went together down the steep path through the wood, across the park, over the village beck, and up the low hollowed steps into the churchyard. Overly was a primitive place. The little congregation was sitting on the wall, or standing about among the tilted tombstones, according to custom, to see John and the clergyman come in. And then there was a general clump and clatter after them into church. The bell stopped, and the service began. Di and John sat at a little distance from each other in the carved tempest pew. The tempests were an overbearing race. The little rough stone church with its round Norman arches was a memorial of their race. Lord, thou hast been our refuge from one generation to another, was graven in the stones of the wall just before Di's eyes. Beneath was a low arch surmounting the tomb of a knight in effigy. Beyond there were more tombs and arches. The building was thronged with the sculptured dead of one family. was a mortuary chapel in itself. Tattered flags hung where pious hands, red with infidel blood, had fastened them. With a simple confidence in their own importance, and the approval of their Creator, the Tempests had raised their memorials and hung their battered swords in the house of their God. The very sun himself smote, not through the gaudy figures of scripture story, but through the painted arms of the Mulbys, of the penniless, pious Malby who sold his land to his clutching Tempest brother-in-law in order to get out to the Crusades. Had God really been their refuge from all those bygone generations to this? Di wondered. In these latter days of millionaire cheesemongers who dwell ageless in the feudal castles of the poor, what wonder if the faith, even of the strongest, waxes cold? She looked fixedly at John as he went to the reading-desk and stood up to read the first lesson. It was difficult to believe the dead were not listening too that the knight-templar, lying in armour, with his drawn sword beside him, and broken hands joined, did not turn his head a little, pillowed so uncomfortably on his helmet, to hear John's low, clear voice. And, as John read, a feeling of pride in him, not unmixed with awe, arose in Di's mind. All he did and said, even when in his gentlest mood, and Di had not as yet seen him in any other. Had a hint of power in it. Power restrained, perhaps, but existent. How strong his iron hand looked, touching the book! She could more easily imagine it grasping a sword-hilt. He stood before her as the head of the race, his rugged profile and heavy jaws silhouetted in all their native strength and ugliness against the uncompromising light of the eastern window. She looked at him, and was glad. He will do us honor," she said to herself. Someone else was watching John, too. "'I will arise and go to my father,' John read. And Mr. Goodwin closed his eyes and prayed the old worn prayer—our prayers for others are mainly tacit reproaches to the Almighty—that God would touch John's heart. Humanity has many sides. But perhaps none more incomprehensible than that represented by the patient, middle-aged man leaning back in his corner and praying for John's soul. None more difficult to describe without an appearance of ridicule, for certain aspects of character, like some faces, lend themselves to caricature more readily than to a portrait. Mr. Goodwin was one of that class of persons who belong so entirely to a class that it is difficult to individualise them, whose peculiar object in life is to stick in clusters like limpets to existing, and especially to superseded, forms of religion. Their whole constitution and central ganglion consists of one adhesive organism. The quality of that to which they adhere does not appear to affect them, provided it is stationary. To their constitution, movement is torture, uprootal is death. It would be impossible to chip Mr. Goodwin from his rock and hold him up to the scrutiny of the reader, without distorting him to a caricature, which is an insult to our common nature. Unless he is in the full exercise of his adhesive muscle, in company with large numbers of his kind, he is nothing, and even then he is not much. Not much? Ah, yes, he is. His class has played an important part in all crises of religious history. It was instrumental in the crucifixion of Christ it called a new truth blasphemy as fiercely then as now. By its law, truth, if new, must ever be put to death. But when Christianity took form, this class settled on it nevertheless, adhered to it as strictly as its forebears had done to the Jewish ritual. It was this class which resisted, and would have burned out, the Reformation. But when the Reformation gained bulk enough for it to stick to, it spread itself upon its surface in due course as it still does today, and who will sweat and agonise for the sake of a new truth, or a newer and purer form of an old one? There will always be those who will stand aside and coldly regard, if they cannot crush, the struggle and the heartbreak of the pioneers, and then will enter into the fruit of their labours, and complacently point in later years to the advance of thought in their time, which they have done nothing to advance but to which, when sanctioned by time and custom and the populace, they will adhere. John shut the book, and Mr. Goodwin, taken up with his own mournful reflections, heard no more of the service, until he was wakened by the shriek of the village choir. Before Jehovah's awful throne ye nations bow with sacred joy. When the clergyman had blessed his flock, and the flock had hurried with his blessing into the open air, Di and John remained behind to look at the nibbled old stone font, engraved with tangled signs and unknown beasts with protruding unknown tongues, where little tempests had whimpered and protested against a Christianity they did not understand. The aisle and chancel were paved with worn lettered stones, obliterated memorials of forgotten tempests who had passed at midnight with flaring torches from their first home on the crag to their last in the valley. The walls bore record too. John had put up a tablet to his predecessor. It contained only the name and date of birth and death, and underneath the single sentence "'Until the daybreak, and the shadows flee away.' Di read the words in silence, and then turned the splendour of her deep glance upon him. Since when had the bare fact of meeting her eyes become so exceeding sharp and sweet such an epoch in the day? John writhed inwardly under their gentle scrutiny. "'You are very loyal,' she said. He felt a sudden furious irritation against her, which took him by for surprise, and then turned to scornful anger against himself. He led the way out of the church into the sad September sunshine, and talked of indifferent subjects till they reached the castle. And after luncheon John went to the library and stared at the shelves again and Miss Vane ambled and grunted to church, and I sat with her grandmother. There are some acts of self-sacrifice for which the performers will never in this world obtain the credit they deserve. Mrs. Courtney, who was addicted to standing proxy for Providence, and was not afraid to take upon herself responsibilities which belonged to omniscience alone, had not hesitated to perform such an act in the belief that the cause justified the means. Indeed, in her eyes a good cause justified many sorts and conditions of means. All Saturday and half-Sunday she had repressed the pangs of her healthy appetite, and had partaken only of the mutton-broth and splintered toast of invalidism. With a not ill-grounded dread lest Di's quick eyes should detect a subterfuge, she had gone so far as to take heart-drops three times a day from the hand of her granddaughter, and had been careful to have recourse to her tin of arrowroot biscuits only in the strictest privacy. But now that Sunday afternoon had come, she felt that she could safely relax into convalescence. The blinds were drawn up, and she was established in an armchair by the window. "'You seem really better,' said Di. "'I should hardly have known you'd had one of your attacks. You generally look so pale afterwards.' "'It has been very slight,' said Mrs. Courtney, blushing faintly. I took it in time. I shall be able to travel to-morrow. I suppose you and Miss Fane went to church this morning?" "'Miss Fane would not go, but John and I did." Mrs. Courtney closed her eyes. "'Virtue may be its own reward, but it is gratifying when it is not the only one.' "'Granny,' said Di suddenly, "'I never knew till John told me that my mother had been engaged to his father.' "'What has John been raking up these old stories for?' I don't think he raked up anything. He seemed to think I knew all about it. He was showing me my mother's miniature which she had found among his father's papers. I always supposed that the reason you never would talk about her was because you had felt her death too much." "'I was glad when she died,' said Mrs. Courtney. "'Was she unhappy, then? Father speaks of her rather sadly when he does mention her, as if he had been devoted to her, but she had not cared much for him, and had felt aggrieved at his being poor. He once said he had many faults, but that was the one she could never forgive. And he told me that when she died he was away on business, and she did not leave so much as a note or a message for him." "'It is quite true she did not,' said Mrs. Courtney, in a suppressed voice. "'I have never talked to you about your mother, Di, because I knew if I did I should prejudice you against your father, and I have no right to do that.' "'I think,' said Di, "'that now I know a little you had better tell me the rest. Or I should only imagine things were worse than the reality." So Mrs. Courtney told her, told her of the little daughter who had been born to her in the first desolation of her widowhood, round whom she had wrapped in its entirety the love that many women divide between husbands and sons and daughters. She told I of young Mr. Tempest, then just coming forward in political life, between whom and herself a friendship had sprung up in the days when he had been secretary to her brother than in the ministry. The young man was constantly at her house. He was serious, earnest, diffident, ambitious. Di reached the age of seventeen. Mrs. Courtney saw the probable result, and hoped for it. With some person to hope for anything, it is to remove obstacles from the path of its achievement." "'And yet, Di,' said Mrs. Courtney, I can't reproach myself. They were suited to each other. It is as clear to me now as it was then. She did not love him, but I knew she would, and she had seen no one else, and he worshipped her. I threw them together, but I did not press her to accept him. She did accept him, and we went down to Overley together. She had this room. I remembered it directly, I saw it again. The engagement had not been formally given out, and the wedding was not to have been till the following spring on account of her youth. I think Mr. Tempest and I were the two happiest people in the world. I felt such entire confidence in him, and I was thankful she should not run the gauntlet of all that a beautiful girl is exposed to in society. She was as innocent as a child of ten, and as unconscious of her beauty, which poor child was very great. And then he, your father, came to Overley. Ten days afterwards they went away together, and I. I, who had never been parted from her for a night since her birth, I never saw her again, except once across a room at a party, until four years afterwards when her first child was born. I went to her then. I tried not to go, for she did not send for me. But she was the only child I had ever had, and I remembered my own loneliness when she was born. And the pain of staying away became too great, and I went. And she was quite changed. She was not the least like my child, except about the eyes, and she was taller. Mr. Tempest never forgave her, because he loved her, but I forgave her at last, because I loved her more than he did. I saw her often after that. She used to to tell me when your father would be away, and he was much away, and then I went to her. I would not meet him. We never spoke of her married life it did not bear talking about, for she had really loved him, and it took him a long time to break her of it. We talked of the baby and servants and the price of things, for she was very poor. She was loyal to her husband. She never spoke about him except once. I remember that day. It was one of the last before she died. I found her sitting by the fire reading Consuelo. I sat down by her, and we remained a long time without speaking often we sat in silence together. You have not come to the places on the road, my dear, when somehow words are no use any more, and the only poor comfort left is to be with someone who understands and says nothing. When you do, you will find silence one degree more bearable than speech." At last she turned to the book, and pointed to a sentence in it. "'I can see the page now, and the tall French print.' The caricature de cet homme entraîne les actions de sa vie. Jamais tu ne la I think that is true, she said. Some characters seem to be settled beforehand, like a weathercock with its leaded tail. They cannot really change, because they are always changing. Nothing teaches them. Happiness, trouble, love, and hate bring no experience. They swing round to every wind that blows on one pivot always, themselves. There was a time when I was afraid I tired God with one name. Jamais tu ne la changerie. No, never. One changes oneself. That is all. And now, instead of reproaching others, I reproach myself bitterly, bitterly. And she never begged my pardon. She once said, when I found her very miserable, that it was right that one who had made others suffer should suffer too. But those were the only times you alluded to the past, and I never did. I did not go to her to reproach her. The kind of people who are cut by reproaches have generally reproached themselves more harshly than anyone else can. She had, I know. It would have been better if she had been less reserved, and if she could have taken more interest in little things. But she did not seem able to. Some women—and they are the happy ones can comfort themselves in a loveless marriage with pretty notepaper, and tying up the legs of chairs with blue ribbon. She could not do that, and I think she suffered more in consequence. Those little feminine instincts are not given us for nothing." She never gave in until she knew she was dying. Then she tried to speak, but she sank rapidly. She said something about you, and then smiled when her voice failed her. gave up the attempt. I think she was so glad to go that she did not mind anything else much. They held the baby to her as a last chance, and made it cry. Oh, Di, how you cried! And she trembled very much, just for a moment, and then did not seem to take any more notice, though they put its little hand against her face. I think the end came all the quicker. It seemed too good to be true at first. Don't cry, my dear. Young people don't know where trouble lies. They think it is in external calamity and sickness and death. But one does not find it so. The only real troubles are those which we cause each other through the affections. Those whom we love chasten us. I never shed a single tear for her when she died. There had been too many during her life, for I loved her better than anything in the world, except my husband, who died when he was twenty-five and I was twenty-two. You often remind me of him. You are a very dear child to me. She said she hoped you would make up a little to me, and you have, not a little. I have brought you up differently. I saw my mistake with her. I sheltered her too much. I hope I have not run into the opposite extreme with you. I have allowed you more liberty than is usual, and I have encouraged you to look at life for yourself, and to think and act for yourself and learn by your own experience. And now go and bathe your eyes, and see if you can find me Fitzgerald's Omakayam. I think I saw it last in the morning-room. John and I were talking about it on Friday. I dare say he will know where it is. End of Volume 2 Chapter 9